0: Gene and Roger is the story of the two most powerful, influential movie critics of their time, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. You can find Gene and Roger on the Big Picture feed, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a quick trailer. It seemed like a crazy idea for a TV show. Take two rivals and
1: let
2: them duke it out about movies. But Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert quickly became the most popular
0: film critics in the country. Millions of viewers tuned in to see whether they vote thumbs up or thumbs down. This is the story of two unlikely superstars who changed the way we argue. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Brian Raftery, and this is Gene and Roger. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking
1: Hi everyone, this is Mike Bauman from the Ringer MLB show. Uh just a quick disclaimer, we recorded today's episode and the discussion about the Nelson Cruz trade before the news broke that Rich Hill had been traded from the Rays to the Mets. So there's a little discussion about the Rays collecting old guys. It's out of date now. Uh but the rest of it should still be good to go. So just keep that in mind when that comes up. All right, uh on with the show. Hello, and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman, and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. Joining me today, as always, are Ringer staff writer, Zach Cram. Say hello, Zach. Hello. And Ringer staff writer, Ben Lindbergh. Say hello, Ben. Hello. We have breaking news. Uh, Sometimes the podcast fills itself. And so less than an hour and a half before we sat down to record this on Friday morning, uh, news broke that the Cleveland Baseball Club had a new name. Uh, effective for next season they are going to be the cleveland guardians much to the disappointment of people who wanted uh them to be to revive the cleveland spiders nickname personally i was rooting for the cleveland balloon disasters um zach what do you think about this new new bit of branding
0: i think it's fine i i see people complaining about it i think because the name itself if you don't know anything about its connection to the city of cleveland seems pretty generic. Uh, and they also did not change the colors at all. It's still the generic uh, blue and red. Uh, the, the the word itself, uh, the word mark looks pretty similar to the old name, including the last uh, letters all being the same. So it looks like they just kind of switched the first three letters and called it a day. But I think when you actually examine the connection to the city of cleveland and the bridge that has the guardians of traffic statues and see that the wings on the guardians of traffic statues have been taken to what i think is actually a very cool baseball logo with wings and a g on it uh i think this is i don't know i give it a b it's not the best it could have been but i also think the the 21st century is full of really bad new sports team names and i don't think i would place guardians in that category
3: Yeah, my initial take was also it's fine, and that has since actually improved to, actually, I kind of like it. I think that it has some things going for it. For one thing, the standard is pretty low. Like when you're talking about MLB team names, I mean, most teams are named after socks or fish or birds or some other kind of creature I mean, Mike, the team... Yeah, (laughs) because
1: fuck birds, man. What's wrong (laughs) with birds? Birds are fine,
3: I guess. I I don't know. But uh, Bauman, the, the team you root for is just like a shortened version of the name of the city. Like the standards for creativity are not very high here. So... Guardians is actually like a little bit outside of the baseball box, I think. And once you know what the local connection is, which to be fair, like most people don't, I think, outside of Cleveland, but people in Cleveland know. And once we know, I think it's kind of cool, like for people who haven't seen... The statues, the guardians of traffic statues on the Hope Bridge, which is just right outside of the stadium. How
1: did how did the guardians of traffic end up in <laughs> Cleveland instead of Houston or LA? That's like yeah. some Utah jazz level stuff.
3: They look like the pillars of kings, the gates into Gondor, exactly. basically, and yeah, they
1: are they are pretty sweet. Yeah, that's, and that's big statues. I
3: think maybe they could have done more with making the font mirror the statues somehow. You know, if it's sort of this art deco design, you could have gone with something like that for the wordmark, which might have been nice instead of just basically porting over the old one. But you're going to have some people upset just because they were attached to the old racist team name and they wouldn't have been happy with anything. And then you're going to get some people who are mad about it because people are mad about every redesign, right? Every time a website changes, everyone complains and says it's unusable and they don't know where to find anything and then gradually you get used to it so by the time next season rolls around guardians will probably sound like it's been the name of a team forever
0: and the that logo i should say yes the the word mark doesn't look the most uh interesting or engaging as it could but that logo will look really cool on a hat which is part of the battle
1: yeah i I think the baseball in the middle actually doesn't quite match with the rest of the the blocky Art Deco design elements of the of the logo, but we'll see. i'm I'm optimistic about the the logo. I was out on on Guardians at my my initial reaction was negative because um it reminded me of the Marvel movie and of the space force of which calling the space force uh officers and enlisted personnel guardians is the dumbest part of a of an extremely stupid uh uh exercise um but th- the connection to the statues it's appropriate that the team that used to run Jim tommy out at third base is naming itself after a statue um but i yeah i i think it's got growth potential i and if I mean, we we just saw we're in the midst of introducing the Seattle Kraken into the NHL. Like that's a an example of like sort of like a C C minus name being redeemed by really really good logo and jerseys. So that's sort of where I was, and then I saw the the design aesthetic. They're not leaning into that sort of Bazlerman Great Gatsby or like Metropolis style design that they they could have done. They're keeping they're keeping like a uniform set and a set of word marks that one it's kind of boring. And two where it is distinctive, it's just a reminder of of the old racist name that like, I don't know, like is you can think whatever you want about guardians. It's better than the alternative, but at the same time, this team doesn't get extra points for ditching a nickname that people were protesting 30 years ago. Um, and that after dragging their feet and admitting that, that, uh, that it was offensive and then continuing to use it for another year, um, you know, I, I don't think this is like, a, you know, like a profound, uh, progressive statement by, by a team that really had me dry kicking and screaming in, uh, uh, into doing this, um, and, they're, you know, they're not making a clean break with, with that iconography. There's still even the wings on the, on the cool guardians logo. If you squint hard enough, you can make that back into, into feathers on a headdress. Like, I, I think there's going to weird, there was talking in from our Ohio people, um, and MLB slack about the amount of boot, like chief Wahoo merchandise. that's going to be purchased this winter and, and worn around progressive field next year. Like i yeah, I I really wish that first of all for if for two reasons, one they're just going to be another red, white, and blue team. They're going to be the eleventh most you know most distinctive or most popular out of the eleven red, white, and blue teams. But uh, like this this was a set of iconography that I think they really needed to make a clean break with, and and so far they've wasted that opportunity.
3: Yeah, I'm kind of torn on that. I mean, I think as long as you don't have some chief Wahoo facsimile with the Guardian's face <laughs> instead of the chiefs, then I think you're doing okay. Obviously, you're doing better than before, which is an extremely low bar. I'm kind of torn on whether like they should have completely rejected the old iconography and name and font and everything, and not even have kept the DNs at the end of the t- the name, and not really caring because the DNs was not the offensive part and if that <laughs> helps people <laughs> translate to, I mean, if, you know, if, if the fact that it's not a complete overhaul in look and name makes it more. It's likely for people to accept it in Cleveland instead of just holding on to the old one forever, just out of tradition's sake or because uh, they think the team is too woke now or whatever. Then I think that is probably a good thing. Like we just we needed a new name and it's good that they're not going to string this out even farther than they did and keep it. You know, there was some talk that they might even not pick a new name by next year and this would linger forever so the fact that they have announced it now while we're still in this season gives everyone time to get used to it and buy their guardians merch heading into next year i think that's better than it could have been
1: so what i'll 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 say to to that about like the ease make the easy transition being better i don't know if that's going to happen or not it's possible but the the closest precedent that like i've seen up close was with north dakota uh hockey here two hockey references in the first 10 minutes of the show that's good um but i used to be a season ticket holder at uh western michigan hockey and one of their conference rivals is north dakota which is a hugely successful team that were the fighting Sioux forever and they had to change their name to something that didn't involve native American imagery. Um, they changed it to the fighting Hawks and kept almost all of the same, uh, you know, the same color scheme and and stuff. And, and, you know, those fans travel well, whenever they came to Western, like I'd see hundreds and hundreds of, of fighting Sioux jerseys. They do all the, the old racist chants, And like, you'd see one or two, people with a fighting Hawks t-shirt with the new logo on it. And they just rejected it. And because that like what was supposed to be an easy transition to something different turned out to be just winking back at like, you know, one of those like a a sly acceptance of of something that, that I think they really ought to, uh, you know, I think that just, you know, objectively they really should have rejected. So I think it's a possibility that, that, that easy transition gets people on board, but I don't think it's a certainty by any stretch of the imagination. I think it, it could end up being counterproductive.
0: I think with new team names in general, it just takes some time. This news has been, what, two hours old? And I think, uh, like Ben said, it with the, the website redesign analogy, it will just take some time. And also, it's, I think, kind of hard to analyze what, makes a team name really pop and become really connected to a city when when that team name is new, given that so many of the names we connect to cities have been around for over a hundred years in MLB's case. Like Yankees or Red Sox is not necessarily a great name in a vacuum, but because of the history they've built up, they've become so connected to the city that now if someone in Boston said, Hey, Red Sox is a silly name, we should change it, they would get laughed out of the room. So I think In some respects, it'll just take some time here. It's not often that you get really great team names that pop right away. Like, Mike, you and I were talking off air before. Then Baltimore Ravens is maybe a good recent-ish example of a team name that worked well from day one. But that was also 25 years ago in a really unique geographical circumstance.
1: Right off the top of my head, I can't think of a titan of American literature who drank himself to death on the streets of Cleveland. I'm sure there <laughs> is one. You know, maybe they should have used use that. But yeah, I th- I think you make a good point. I mean, this name and and the logo have definitely grown on me just in the past two hours. So, um, you know, it there there's the initial reaction, and you see the context, and yeah, you know, it'll be fine. I I think even if it does end up being fine or even good, I do think this is a missed opportunity to try to try to do something that pushes the envelope. Um, Or like I said, to make a clean break with that, with the old colors, the old uh, word mark and and stuff. So, you know, I I think this could end up being like, like you said, Zach, like a B, maybe even a B plus logo and uniform set. Once we all get used to it, once we see it uh, for real on the field next year. But uh, that, that missed opportunity is, is always going to bug me. I think
3: yeah you know, the other options that were kind of in the discussion were not all that exciting to me. I don't know about you guys, but like Cleveland Blues or something. I mean, no more color names. Just, you know yeah, no more color names, and of course, you know there are a lot of people who are pro spiders and are disappointed that it's not spiders. I was never in favor of spiders. It seems like almost as... You wanted
1: the steamers, right? To honor <laughs> the rail industry. Sure. In the, in the Rust Belt.
3: I thought spiders always seemed sort of like an ironic name. You know, its greatest association is with one of the worst teams of all time. And it would be a bit out of the box when it comes to picking creatures because a lot of people don't like spiders and are scared of spiders. And so that would have been divisive. It would have been distinctive at least. So there's that, but I never thought that was a a great name that I am sorry to see that they didn't pick.
1: I think there are two, there are two ways you could go. I I think that's distinctive. Like university of Richmond, I think does pretty well with the, the spider branding. There's a, a Northwoods lead team called the dock spiders though, that has like a giant hairy, frightening tarantula like thing that takes up the entire front two panels of the cap. Um, so maybe they would have gone that direction. Maybe we dodged a bullet if they had decided to do something like
0: that. In an out of the park simulation that I'm playing just last night, the Miami Marlins renamed themselves the mercenaries, which I thought was pretty on the nose. And at least mm. this is better than mercenaries.
1: I'm not sure this is better than mercenaries. <laughs> yeah,
0: mercenaries is pretty good. That That's my final take on the situation.
1: Yeah, I guess Ben doesn't have any more takes on like uniforms and aesthetics and stuff. <laughs> um, so let's go to actual baseball news. that broke uh, shortly before this uh, this podcast. Uh, Nelson Cruz is on the move um, slowly, as is Nelson Cruz's custom. But he's going from the moribund Minnesota Twins. Man, what went wrong up there? Uh, but he's down to going down to Tampa Bay Um his former teammate Miguel Sano paid tribute to Nelson Cruz by wearing Cruz's pants last night, and you know I like to think that if I ever leave this podcast, one of you will honor me by wearing my pants uh, at a future recording. I you know I would be really moved by that as a gesture. I think
3: if I leave, I hope one of you honors me by not wearing pants at all.
1: Okay, there. Well, we're going to get to that later in this episode, as uh, as it happens. Uh, Nelson Cruz, forty one years old. Still hitting 294, 375, 37 in 85 games. Uh, that's a hell of a bat for for any lineup, um, particularly uh, one in Tampa Bay that, you know, could use a little extra production from those outfield DH spots.
0: So here's a, a pop quiz. I'm not sure if either of you looked this up, but who before the trade for Nelson Cruz has the best WRC plus on the Rays, not counting like Drew Rasmussen, who has one plate appearance. Hmm. I'm guessing it's not a Rosarena. Is it Zunino? It is Mike Zunino. All-star Mike Zunino. He has a 124. And to be fair, like G-Man Choi is a 123. Brandon Lau has a 122. Meadows is 118. Diaz is 116. A Rosarena is 112. Wendell's 115. And I think that shows what the Rays' offense is like. They're above average, but it's because they have a lot of slightly above average players. And I don't know zunino has had a great year he's also striking out 37 percent of the time and i don't anticipate him being like a cleanup hitter on a playoff contender so i think this fills a hole they had in the middle of the order and gives them that top end bat that they really didn't have maybe wander franco breaks out he's struggled in his first hundred plate appearances i imagine he will be better by september october but it really does just kind of it really does give an anchor to this lineup that is already an average or better at almost every spot so i think that's a really important point as we've talked about on the pod many times before it is harder to go from average to great at any one position than to go from bad to average and nelson cruz actually is that upgrade who is really great and notable over anyone else the rays have
3: Yeah, one of the great old hitters of all time, of course, having one of the best age 40 seasons of all time, and he's actually 41. If I did the addition right, he now has more home runs after turning 35 than he did before turning 35, which is kind of incredible. He's up to 220 homers after his 35th birthday and 216 before. So that's pretty amazing. And yeah, as you said, the Rays have like a barely above average offense overall, but I think they have a 97 WRC plus by DHs. They're one of these teams that just sort of cycles guys in and out of that spot to give them a rest. and. I do wonder how this affects their ability to play certain players or who will lose playing time at the expense of Nelson Cruz, but whoever it is will not be as good a hitter as Nelson Cruz. So obviously it's an upgrade. And I think this really, it kind of like fits in with the Rays tradition of having ancient DHs who you sort of forget were on the raise for a year or two at the end of their career. So Nelson Cruz really fits into that lineage of like Jose Canseco, Greg Vaughn, Johnny Damon, Fred McGriff, yeah, Fred McGriff, Cliff Floyd, yeah. Pat Burl. Remember, the, <laughs> remember Pat Burl, Paul yeah. Sorrento, Luke Scott, Al Martin, David De Jesus. I was looking this up. This is just like a raised tradition. So I like that they're honoring that. And Cruz should be the best of the bunch in theory.
0: Old guy retires to Tampa. It's a tell as old as time.
3: Yeah. And I should also note that the Rays have not really hit that well against lefties this year for whatever that's worth. Some of their best hitters are left-handed hitters, although they have some righty mashers, but they are 24th among uh, all major league teams in non-pitcher WRC plus against lefties. So adding another big ready bat can't hurt.
1: Yeah, I... It sh- just to be safe, I'm going to mention the, the right-handed pitcher that Tampa Bay got, because they can't make a trade without also getting a minor league righty, righty uh, nobody's heard of. Calvin Fauché, um, late of UC Irvine, uh, I'm sure just because he's been added to the race system, is going to be throwing 103 in the ALDS in a couple months. So we should get out in front of that and uh, and act like we knew who he was before this trade.
0: I will note, speaking of minor league right-handed pitchers, it's not like the twins gave Cruz away for free here. He was going to be a free agent at the end of the season. And for a team that no longer has any realistic playoff hopes, they got a couple good prospects back. I think Joe Ryan is the better of the two. And I think he has a really bright future. He is, uh, what was he, the number 10 prospect according to MLB.com, but that is not a generic number 10 prospect. The Rays have the best farm system in baseball, so he's automatically one of the Twins' better prospects now, and he strikes out just a ton of batters. He has struck out 11 uh, batters per nine or better at every minor league stop in his career. This year, he's at AAA, and he has a 3.63 ERA, a 3.24 FIP. He could fit uh, in the Twins rotation right now, and I imagine that for, what, two months of cruise that they weren't going to benefit from anyway when it comes to playoff odds. Getting Ryan and another promising young pitcher back is a pretty good piece of work for the Twins front office, too.
3: Yeah, you don't often see players who are just impending free agents bring back much of a prospect return in this era of front office operations. So to get someone of note back for a couple months of a 41-year-old DH, that's pretty good. And there was, I think, a lot of interest in Cruz. So it's kind of a coup for the Rays to get him here in, obviously, a very competitive division where they are going up against three other really playoff caliber teams and trying to win this division. It's a pretty big upgrade cuz he might have fit on some of these other teams or there are even reports that there were National League teams that were interested in Nelson Cruz and just would have stuck him on the, in the field and hoped for the best. So, I think it's probably for the best for Cruz that he ended up with another AL team, but that just goes to show that there are a lot of teams that would have been happy to have him.
0: Also, on the Team USA roster for the Olympics, which we will be discussing shortly. <laughs> what are you doing?
1: you doing segues.
0: No, I would never. Yeah. Too soon for a segue. We're not done with this segment yet though. It was a tease.
1: Okay. Yeah, it was a All tease.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> like you can't drive, <laughs> like get in the back seat. no backseat driving here. Um, yeah. So this, the, the twins, the sellers, I, I think is something none of us really anticipated before. Uh, before the season started, they've had a pretty shockingly bad, uh, season. Obviously Cruz with his age and his contract status made a, a logical trade candidate. Um, Zach, I think you were interested in, in discussing who else might be on the way out of Minnesota.
0: Yeah. So they have a couple other players who are free agents after this season. Uh, I think Cruz was obviously the best of the bunch. Like Andrelton Simmons is not hitting at all this year. he, could help someone certainly as a backup infielder, but I'm not sure that he is going to be as desirable a player as he might have been in past years. But looking beyond just the season, like Byron Buxton is a free agent after next year. Jose Barrios is a free agent after next year. Taylor Rogers is a free agent after next year. And I think the twins are in an interesting predicament because with most teams that are this far out of the playoff race, you would say, yeah, trade these guys now and you can definitely get good prospect return for what is a the equivalent of two playoff races for the team that would acquire someone like Barrios. But the Twins theoretically could contend again next year. So I'm unclear on where the Twins front office is at, whether they should explore a trade of Barrios or Buxton or try and hold on to them for another year and contend with them as they expected to this season.
1: Yeah, particularly that. That's what I was going to say is you roll this core back next year and make changes around the edges and upgrade where you can. Like that, that team's probably, I don't know, 60 or 70% to make the playoffs, even without some kind of major overhaul. I I don't think that the long-term outlook for this core has really changed all that much. Buxton is sort of a weird case because like, I don't, I'll just read off the numbers, 369, 409, 767. Uh, an elite base dealer, maybe the best defensive center fielder in the league, but he's only played 27 games. And that's sort of the the you know the the ongoing uh conundrum for for Byron Buxton. So I think if you can get a team to bite on the on the upside um and take on some of that risk, then maybe you trade him. But Barrios in particular, I'd hang on to. Uh, because I I think that this team could make a run next year, even without doing major surgery on the roster
0: you know the last time byron buxton had even 300 plate appearances in a season
1: it could be any year i know i i've, I've written the the byron buxton is going to break out this year column i think every year the ringer has been in production so it, it
0: was 2017 yeah. so the first the first full season that the Ringer was in production was the last time Byron Buxton had even 300 plate appearances in this season.
3: Well, he has broken out. He's just also broken. So since 2019, he is on a per plate appearance basis, the best position player in baseball other than Mike Trout. It's just that he has played basically one full season over those two and a half seasons. So there were some reports that the twins were exploring an extension with Buxton, which really fascinated me because how can you possibly value him when you know that when he's on the field, he is one of the best players in baseball? Baseball, but he is so rarely on the field. So you have to come up with some kind of contract structure that reflects both of those natures of Byron Buxton and have some sort of heavily incentive laden deal. So that really
1: good, a really good. relationship with your insurance company
3: (laughs) that too yeah but as you were saying they could do
0: they could do the uh the hitter version of the kenta maeda contract right also a, a twin but when he signed with the dodgers he had like what were described as the worst medicals some people had ever seen so they just gave him a very low base salary and then increases for like every 10 inning threshold and every start. So theoretically, you could work something like that with. And then Bucks they screwed in, him by well, putting him in yes. the bullpen
1: every August to keep him from hitting those thresholds. But yeah, uh, the the righteousness of of baseball uh, management.
3: As you were saying, I, I picked the twins to be my preseason <laughs> AL Central champions. So that has not gone great for them or for me. But a lot of the things that I liked about them then, I still sort of like about them. So this doesn't seem like a total teardown situation. So I think, whereas with Cruz, it was pretty easy to say that they should try to trade him for whatever they could get back. And, you know, he even said that he might resign with the Twins because he likes being there, clearly. But with these other guys who were under contract for a while they would have to be blown away probably to make those moves. And one more thing about Cruz, because we were just focusing on his stats, like he is also reputed to be just the greatest clubhouse guy and clubhouse leader and everyone loves him. So that I don't know how much the Rays need that or how much they need the veteran leadership or how that changes if he is slotting into a new clubhouse as opposed to one he's been in for a few years. But that's an aspect of Cruz that you're also getting when you trade for him.
1: There's no downside to that, though. Like, good vibes are always welcome. You sure. Know, how, however much mm-hmm. impact they actually have.
0: And with Cruz and Rich Hill on the same team, the Rays now have both winners of Ben's yes. and my uh, midseason old guys still got it award.
3: <laughs> yeah, oldest pitcher and oldest hitter in the American League.
1: And the the Giants are still in it. Like, this is the age of the olds. All right, we're going to take a break and uh, do that thing that that Zach was teasing earlier. So uh, stick around. We'll be right back. So for our next segment, we're going to do something we haven't done in a while. Uh, we're going to have a guest. It is my profound pleasure to welcome back to the show after a long absence, Ringer staff writer, Roger
2: Sherman. Roger, say hello. Hey, thanks for having me. Do you do you remember the last time I was on this show? Because I think about it a lot.
1: It, was it, were we talking about Kyler Murray?
2: Was- you brought me on as a college football fan slash expert to talk about Oakland Day's draft pick, Kyler Murray. Uh, so that that was a long time ago,
1: but it is and Zach, you're gonna love this. It has not been Roger's absence from this podcast has not been as long as the absence of baseball and softball uh, in the Olympics. And Roger, of course, is on Holy here. Shit,
2: what a segue.
1: I know. Zach gives me so much shit for my bad That's segues. His first
3: ever good one, and you were here for it.
1: Roger, we need you to just sit in on all the shows from now on because I think you're bringing out the best of me. Anyway, Roger is here in his capacity as the host of the Ringer Guide to the Summer Games, uh, an outstanding Olympics podcast that we, uh, that I say we, that Roger and a bunch of other people who work with me are producing. We have nothing to do with it, but uh, the return of baseball and softball is something that the three of us are pretty excited about. And, uh, you know, it's a good excuse to bring you on to to
2: plug the podcast. Yeah, I love plugging things. <laughs>
3: Hey, can I ask you a general question? We're obviously all happy that baseball and softball is back in the Olympics for the first time since 2008. And maybe for the last time for a while, too. We know it won't be in the 2024 Olympics in Paris. And it's only here because there was an IOC rule change right, that allowed the host country to choose what sports it wants in some cases. And Japan loves baseball. And so baseball and softball are back. Do you think that baseball and softball are good Olympic sports for the world at large? Like, where would you rank them in terms of things that have kind of a a global interest? Because obviously, baseball and softball have international audiences and players, but I guess they're not the most international sports.
2: So first off, that's exactly what happened. The hosts now gets to pick a few sports, which is why it's in The Olympics, when the Olympics are in Japan, uh, you can expect that in 2028, when the Olympics are in L.A., that'll happen again. Um, I don't think every sport has to be popular in every country in the world. It's still really fun to watch, you know, all the best players, American baseball players play hypothetically, all the best Japanese baseball players or players from other countries. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen in the Olympics in baseball, which makes it kind of a big bummer. That I would say that's the thing that annoys me more about Olympic baseball than the hypothetical lack of international interest. It's it's the fact that you know MLB created its own international competition, the World Baseball Classic, which is fun and we love it. But then we have this sort of weird, uh, some prospects and some old guys version of baseball on the Olympics. The Olympic softball tournament, on the other hand, is just like all the best softball players in the world who don't really have a showcase to do what they do on a professional level in the same way that MLB has. Um, and, you know, it, it does seem like a thing which has the potential to make these not-so-international games a little bit more international when you put them on a big stage like this. Um, so I I like the them as Olympic sports, except for the one thing that makes baseball
0: kind of impossible to do in the Summer Olympics. Uh, Yeah. So one of your first episodes was about softball, and I thought it was so interesting that you talked about how these athletes have to train not knowing if the sport is going to be in the Olympics four, eight, 12 years down the line. And that isn't something that happens with most Olympic sports. So having talked to at least one of the, the Olympians for that episode, what kind of impression did you get from what they think about the future of the sport?
2: Well, so these sports, both baseball and softball, were in the Olympics until 2004. Uh, actually, sorry, until 2008, they were they were removed uh, by the IOC in 2005, and then they played one last time in 2008. And so, with the softball team, it's all these players who either grew up hoping to be in the Olympics, dreaming of being in the Olympics, and then it's then it wasn't there anymore, <laughs> and. That's sort of brutal. Cause that was like the big stage for softball. There is no, you know, the, the most watched softball event in the world when there's no Olympics is probably the the women's college world series. And that's not a professional thing. It kind of says your, your career is has an expiration date after you graduate college. And that's a huge bummer. And it, it does like, there is sort of a limit on how far you can go as a professional athlete in that sport. Even if you're one of the elites, it might be easier to get a job in something else. Um, And the funny thing is with the baseball guys, it's less of like this dream that they've been fighting for and more like, oh, sure, I'll do that. Like the U.S. baseball team is comprised of guys who sometime in the last two or three months got a call and said, Hey, you want to be on the baseball team, the Olympic baseball team? You want to be in the Olympics? And they were like, that sounds fun. And it's such a weird dichotomy between those two very different versions of what the Olympics mean, um, for these two sports that are linked together They they, they will only ever have baseball and softball in the Olympics. They'll never have one or the other. Uh, so they have these two very different versions of that Olympic dream.
1: It's yeah. And you see the star making potential of the Olympics. Cause you know, you think of know, 20 years ago when it was at its, I guess, peak of popularity, what that's done for the individual celebrity of people like, uh, like Jenny Finch's close as close to a, a household name. as she'll get from a softball player, you know, Jessica Mendoza now has a successful broadcasting career. Um, You know, one of the things that got her in the door was was being a world class uh, uh, Olympic softball player. And, you know, this generation of of, uh, of athletes hasn't really got that. You know, i caught a bit of the USA Canada game the other night and saw Monica Abbott pitching, who I remember from one of those women's college world series when she was at Tennessee. And like, how does anybody Like, I still have no idea how anybody hits off her, but, you know, she's I know she's bounced around from startup pro league and is now, I believe, playing in in Japan. But there's not really an avenue, even for something like NWSL or the WNBA or the NWHL, that these sort of startup uh, women's leagues that maybe aren't as popular as their um, their male counterparts. There's not even anything like that in the U.S. as far as I know.
2: Yeah, there's a new league that was launched uh, last year, um, this thing called Athletes Unlimited. Uh, we didn't get into this on the pod, but it's like um it's actually kind of a fun concept. They're doing leagues in softball, volleyball, and a third sport that I forget where like the it's a bunch of just the best pro softball players in the world. and they just keep switching teams and getting redrafted. and the idea is to like win sort of an individual champion to be like the highest rated player in it, which was really fun. And I think Cat Osterman ended up being the. but it was like player focused and the players. um uh Also, I think their salaries changed based on how well they did stuff like that. It, and it was like a, a really fun concept, but yeah, that this, there's not really that next thing. And you see, it is surprising. You see that when you watch the, the team, there's still these players from 2008, like Cat Osterman and Monica Abbott. And it's like, I just, how did they sustain themselves for 13 years in this absence of that next level thing? Um, it's like really a labor of love in many ways. And yeah, the, the players from, if you ask people to name a famous softball player, they'll almost definitely say someone from when the team was in the Olympics. There's this whole generation of stars who passed through college and didn't really have anywhere to go you know those those pro leagues that you mentioned do not pay a full-time you know athlete salary it's really hard to ask someone to keep training and doing all the stuff you need to be the best in the world at something when they also need to figure out how they're going to pay for stuff this may have some uh similarities with for example, minor league baseball.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's the the intersection of of uh, worker exploitation and uh, gender inequality. So that makes it, you know, particularly uplifting as a, a topic of conversation. Um, so one thing that I know you and I have talked about in the the months leading up to both the baseball and softball tournaments is that there are only six teams competing in each of them, which yeah. leads to it leads this fascinating. Uh, this fascinating uh dynamic where half the teams are going to get medals and like these uh these two sports that combine for 12 teams are going to give out like more than 100 medals between gold silver and bronze to the individual athletes um i don't know i i guess you just go out to to win every single game like that doesn't really impact how you uh uh, approach the tournament, but it does open the door, I think, for for a fluky medalist on on one side or the other. Maybe not in softball where the U.S. has been so dominant, but but definitely in baseball.
2: Yeah, I have literally, I really honestly don't think I've ever seen an Olympic event with this few competitors in it. I feel like there's always at least like eight or ten. Six. Yeah, last time around it was eight. Ha- yeah. Like half of the teams are going to get a medal. So, I mean, A, really embarrassing for the <laughs> the three baseball teams who don't get one. But um that means Team USA almost definitely going to medal in both. Um especially with baseball um without the best players in in the world being there when you talk about the opportunity for a fluky medalist. It's it's really tough to gauge which of these teams should win. Um I think the money is on Japan because they have so many players from the pro league which did stop they have Masahiro Tanaka who's playing in Japan right uh, and all these other players who are like the top stars of that league which is probably a little bit above minor league level um but it's it's also just you know so strange um another thing about baseball is, we typically play, you know, five or seven games, well, to figure out who should advance, and it's very dependent on who your starting pitcher is. And there's obviously no time in a two-week Olympics to play a seven-game series, so yeah, the the odds of flukiness are high when some uh, team with no major leaguers has to run out their like third starting pitcher in a in a game that could decide how they, whether they get a medal or not.
0: So baseball and softball have very different bracket structures to account for the six teams that Mike is talking about. On the baseball side, it's two groups of three, and then they're seated after that, and then it's double elimination, basically. And in softball, it's just a round robin of the six teams in one group, and then the top two teams play for the gold medal, and teams three and four play for the bronze. And I'm curious, do you have a preference on which of those uh structures you find more interesting? I think the softball one kind of seems designed to just pit Japan and the US against each other in the gold medal match, whereas the baseball one might be more wide open, but I'm curious what you think of that having looked at these brackets more closely than I have.
2: Yeah, the the softball one obviously seems more likely to end up with the best two teams, which like you said is Japan and Team USA. Japan and Team USA is like, if I was to like circle like the most interesting like matchups in the Olympics, these are like the only two countries that are like really top tier level good at softball. And I think they've played in the championship game of the world softball championship seven years in a row. And the last time it went to uh, extra innings, I think it was 10 innings, um, which is a lot more softballs only seven innings. Um, so like, that's like really a game, which I, I want to see that gold medal game very badly. And I'm glad they have a setup, which pretty much ensures that it'll be the case. And yeah, the, the baseball one with that, uh, double elimination format, the, uh, when, when the Olympics do double elimination, they call it repechage, which is just funny. I do love
1: that. <laughs> I just yeah. love
2: that. I just, baseball has never had repechage before until now. But uh, I mean,
1: it has repishage Like this is the the standard format for sorry, Roger, for college baseball. Yeah, but uh, if you <laughs> season, but but you can't call it repishage when half the teams are I don't know. Like the only people in college baseball who know what repassage means are like the French speaking Cajuns <laughs> at LSU. Hey, can you picture and the so- head
2: coach of like Mississippi State say the word repassage?
1: Yeah, i actually could he's he's
2: pretty area okay i was guy. picturing a generic <laughs> mississippi state <laughs> okay head coach Not- like the the head coach at texas tech less so but anyway i i uh that seems a little bit more wacky but i also don't know who's gonna who's gonna really come out on top there um it's it's i i am kind of curious to see how well that team USA team with so many wonderful randos and so many interesting prospects, whether that can actually be a gold medal squad.
3: Yeah, I was looking back at the 2008 USA Baseball squad, which won the bronze, and that team had like Trevor Cahill and Dexter Fowler when they were still in double A, and Jake Arietta when he was still in A ball, I think, and Steven Strasburg who hadn't even been drafted yet.
1: Yeah, he was Steven Strasburg <laughs> was a college sophomore. Brett right. Laurie played in that Olympics like right after he graduated high school.
3: Yeah. So I don't know if you have as wide an age range this time. I think all of the players are either from A AA or AAA, or you have some guys who are like in NPP, which as you mentioned, takes a break for the Olympics as does the KBO, I believe. And you have like, Anthony Carter coming from the Mexican league. And then you also just have like the old guys who aren't on any team except this one. And it's just like one last ride for, I don't know, David Robertson and Todd Frazier and Edwin Jackson adding to his record number of teams. (laughs) I love that.
2: Like (laughs) you said, you said there's not a wide age range, but they're like <laughs> yeah. they're guys at double A and then there's Edwin Jackson. Yes, that is teammates. true.
3: There are fewer really young guys, I guess, but there are also some extremely old guys. So I'm hoping that like someone here has some big moment where their kind of coming out party on the national or international stage happens in the Olympics. Like I don't know, Shane Baz or someone that with the maze That happens every year. Yeah, there, that right. happens
1: every Olympics because last there are time some around, real prospects here. So Yeah, like Ben Sheet's big uh, coming out party as a prospect was uh, he won the gold medal game in 2000. You know, Hyun Jin Ryu was the the winning pitcher in 2008 in the gold medal game when when he was 21. Strasburg pitched in the uh, the final when he or not the final the the semifinal um, against Cuba in 2008 when he, I think he was 20. So like that'll happen to to Shane Boser or um. Julio Rodriguez is probably the best prospect in this tournament from the Dominican Republic. But like they've got these and this is one of my favorite things about Olympic baseball is that it serves this as like an introduction for some of these prospects to to really start to, to make a name for themselves in front of a, an audience of more casual fans. You know, I don't know if that's going to happen now that the games are all going to be at four in the morning on the East Coast. But, uh, you know, I, I think that's a definite possibility. Also, Edwin Jackson isn't that old. Uh, Edwin Jackson is 37. Um, Like just based on the fact that he debuted in what 2003 you'd expect him to be like 51. But Edwin Jackson is sneaky young.
0: One name we haven't discussed at length yet is Eddie Alvarez, who I think excites all of us. And Roger, as our distinguished guest, I was wondering if you could um, educate us about Eddie Alvarez, who carried the flag in this morning.
2: Yeah, Eddie Alvarez, who... We'll be a guest on our, uh, our baseball episode of our podcast, which will come out, uh, I think, uh, during the second week of the Olympics. So stay tuned for that. Um, it's one of the like strangest stories in Olympic history. He, uh, he's from Miami. He loved baseball growing up, but he was also really good at speed skating. He started doing rollerblades because they don't have ice in Miami but he got spotted and recruited to be on the short track speed skating team at the Olympics, the winter Olympics. He won a silver medal at the 2014 Olympics. Uh, And then was like, I've done this. I want to do baseball. He also had some really bad knee injuries, which is a big issue in speed skating and not as big an issue in baseball. Um, So that was part of why he switched sports. But, you know, then at 24 years old, he was playing rookie ball. Worked his way up. He was briefly on the Marlins last year when all of the Marlins had COVID. If you remember that strange moment in time. And uh, then he got the opportunity to be on the Olympic team in in baseball. And he was like, absolutely. Uh, and he has a chance to be the first man to win a medal in the summer and winter Olympics since the 1930s, back when like athletes weren't real. (laughs) 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 I'm I'm, I'm sure this comes up in baseball sometimes that like back in the 1930s, like athletes are kind of just making stuff up as they were, as they went. Um, But that that's, it's like such an unusual situation. And when you hear about someone, there have been people who have won in the summer and winter Olympics uh, and it's always like they were a sprinter that did the bobsled. That's the only way you can do it. That's pretty much the only way you can do it. If you're a cycling, sprinter.
1: Cycling and speed skating is the other yeah. one. I've bored Zach a million times talking. One of the favorites for the women's cycling road race, Demi Vollering, was a, a junior uh, speed skater. If you've uh-huh. got absolutely huge legs. Yeah, yeah if you, you can could do, do both well, of cardio is the same, basically, once, once you get to a, a certain point,
2: right? But those are two very specific paths. And this dude was a goddamn speed skater who then was good at baseball, not like in the major leagues good, briefly in the major leagues good, but like at that exact level, which you have to be to be on the Olympic baseball team. Like he kind of tears it up in AAA. He's not in the majors. It's the most roundabout way to pull the, most unusual like feat ever. And he's so like honored and proud and happy. And just like the fact that he made both of these Olympics is like such a great way to summarize one of the strangest sports careers you'll ever see. And he, we got to talk to him. I talk, I, um, I called him. He was on the bus in Cary, North Carolina, and we got a,
0: a good 10, 10, to 15 minutes with him. And it's a fun episode. I told you, I love plugging stuff. The best part about like the 1930s Olympics, where you were talking about it all being fake is, uh, and I remember teaching Bowen about this at some point, And it was a, a great conversation about how in the 1930s, they would hold like poetry competitions at the Olympics and architecture competitions. And I don't know, maybe they could bring that back. Now and you could meddle in winter and summer and poetry uh at the Olympics. But yeah, it, it was a long time ago. The triple crown. <laughs> the real triple crown.
1: Yeah. If if that was still around, i like I wouldn't be doing this. I'd be chasing that Olympic gold golden I don't know, poetry, I guess would be the
3: trivia. You and Zach could go for the golden trivia. Uh,
1: we didn't even we didn't even win the state title. We <laughs> asked asked Zach about about uh, advertising slogans for jeans. Um yeah, we came so close.
2: We're getting we're getting off track here, but uh yeah, they did poetry one time and the guy who won was also the guy who founded the Olympics. Oh yeah. and Coubertin, and he was he was he entered the poem under a pseudonym, but like I feel like they all knew cuz like if you read the poem it sucks. <laughs> 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 like like it, they had to be like we should give it to the guy who's in charge. Like, cause I, I don't, I, I, I'm skeptical. I want to go back and talk to the judges, huh.
1: a, a judging scandal, favoritism in a, in a sub, subjective Olympic judging. I have never heard of such a, they thing. need
2: robot umps for the poetry contest at the Olympics.
1: Yeah, there we go. All right. Uh, Roger, tell us about, or tell the listeners about where they can find this podcast of yours, how long it's going to be going, what you're going to be covering, uh, you know, when new, new episodes come out.
2: Ah, uh, thanks. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no. So it's called the Ringer Guide to the Summer Games. It's on, I think, I think all the things that podcasts are on. If you're listening to a podcast right now, you you know how podcasts work. Um, and we're doing a, a an episode that's like ten to fifteen minutes every day about a different sport. You know, I just figured uh, you didn't want to listen to like fifty minutes of like equestrian talk. So we we did 10 minutes at a time, and there's going to be a new episode every day for the entire Olympics about, you know, some of the stories, some of the things that athletes do, because sometimes they're speed skaters from Miami who also play baseball. And that's just the most interesting thing in the world to me, <laughs> that that someone could do that.
1: All right. Uh, so yeah, go check that out. Thank you so much for joining us, Roger. Uh, try to find a time, some time to to get some sleep over the next couple of weeks. But otherwise, we'll be enjoying the games right right along with you. I truly don't
2: know when
1: I'm supposed to sleep. <laughs> and then you get football season right after that too. Shut
2: up. So okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to February. All right, we're gonna take a quick break and be right back with the unnamed weekend preview segment right after this. All right. Thanks again to Roger Sherman for joining us. Uh, I know I'm really looking forward to Olympic baseball uh, to seeing if the U S can grab one of the can make good on its 50% chance at a medal. Um, But we have major league action as always this weekend. Uh, so it's time for the unnamed weekend preview segment. And the day that Ben foretold earlier in this episode has come because I am to the verge of unprofessionalism excited for this weekend's uh I94 derby between the Milwaukee Brewers and the Chicago White Sox. I don't think you could I don't think you could draw up a series of pitching matchups that gets me more I'll just use excited as a euphemism here. Uh, Friday night, Freddie Peralta versus Lucas Giolito. Saturday, Corbin Burns versus Carlos Rodon. Sunday in prime time, Brandon Woodruff versus Lance Lynn.
3: Ah. <laughs> Yeah, weekend matchups don't get much better than that. I saw a tweet by Jeremy Frank at MLP Random Stats who said that this will be the first time that two teams faced each other on consecutive days with all four starters having sub 2.25 ERAs and 15 or more games started since September 8th to 9th. 1917, which was Cleveland versus the White Sox. So a bit more than a century. And yeah, there are a lot of qualifiers in that fun fact. But I think it holds up. And that, if anything, underrates the quality of this pitching matchup, because that's just focusing on two of the games. And the third game is also great. So it's pretty you good. Have the, the two Bauman favorites, at least two. You have. Yeah, there's going to be really. a lot of
1: me plugging my own <laughs> yeah. work
3: during this. Weekend. <laughs> yeah, It's basically every pitcher you have profiled is starting in this series.
0: I am genuinely curious if we will see a single playoff series that has three better pitching matchups than this random interleague July series, because it is hard to imagine two teams with a better trio of pitchers than both of these. I mean, we knew Giolito was good heading into the season. We knew Woodruff and Burns were good. But Rodan has come out of not nowhere because he was around like years ago, but he In terms of 2020 context, he has come out of nowhere. Freddie Peralta has taken some giant leaps forward this year, and I'm even forgetting someone. Uh, Oh, Lance Lynn! How could I forget Lance Lynn, who's going to be on in primetime? We knew he was going to be good this year.
1: I think you were just—we just all assumed that you were already talking about Lance.
0: Yeah, and like looking at the the potential playoff teams, I guess the Dodgers could have a trio that's this good. Maybe the Padres if everyone's healthy and, and. turns to four, maybe like if Max Scherzer gets traded to one of the top playoff teams, but it is hard to imagine two better trios facing each other, even on the playoff stage. So I think that's why we're over the moon about this year is this isn't something you get every October, let alone every July.
1: Yeah, that's something that really came in a relief for me when I was working on the power rankings after the uh, after the All-Star break is these are the two teams that have gotten the most mileage out of their rotations, particularly in terms of of having a few pitchers at the top who are both excellent and consistent and have been healthy all year. And I think like you said, you could talk about the Dodgers or the Padres if they have everybody available, but like not only having two teams with rotations this good stack up, but having the top 3 up against each other, having the the schedule shake out this way, that doesn't happen very often. I mean, it happens apparently once every 104 years. Uh so like in addition to to this being a pretty hilarious confluence of pitchers I personally like, like th- these might be the two best rotations of baseball as currently constituted right now.
0: How would you rank the six pitchers? Top of your
1: head. How would I rank them? I mean, in terms of I don't know, Giolito is not actually having a that great a year by his standards. Like right now, I'd probably go Burns Lynn Rodon. Woodruff, Giolito, Peralta. I know that's not quite what the stats say.
0: I wish the listeners could see your face right now as you strain to not offend, like an amazing pitcher,
1: as you make me pick between, you know, make me choose a favorite out of a a, a list of pitchers where Brandon Woodruff is my fifth favorite. Yeah, that's like
3: this was actually really cruel that Cram made you do this. Like this is ranking the kids in front of the kids, basically. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm shocked that you put Lance second.
1: I think right now Burns is better than he is, it, like particularly for for one game. Um,
0: ben, are you shocked because Bauman decided to highlight the fact that he was right about something versus the fact that he was in love with Lance Lynn all along? Because he was, you know, he was written that the college pitcher thing was coming, so. The Lance Lynn thing was more hey, of an Burns emotional yeah, love. No, this is, this every is an intellectual one. we talk love. about
1: how I was right about Corbin Burns, Ben has to talk about how he <laughs> yeah. was also right about Corbin yeah.
3: Burns. Yeah, Burns was my breakout pick in the Ringer's staff post a couple of years ago, so I get to take credit for him, too.
1: Zach, where were you on Corbin Burns? Why were you, why were you so late to the party?
0: <laughs> I thought he was great. I just don't think I ever put pen to paper or fingers to keys about it. He was too distracted by Trent Grisham.
1: Yeah, there you go.
3: Anyway, that's a tough act to follow. There's no other series that can quite stack up to that, but there are a few other good ones. You've got A's Mariners, some wild card implications, at least there. I guess you have Cardinals Reds, which is less interesting, but those two teams have almost identical records. And then you have Yankees Red Sox, which is pretty big. And the Yankees really need to do well in the rest of the series. They lost another heartbreaking game in which they coughed up some runs at the very end of the game on Thursday in the first matchup between these teams. So now it's really kind of make or break, about as make or break as things can be in July and in determining what their actions will be at the trade deadline, because if they get swept the rest of the series or if they sweep the rest of the series, that does really change things.
0: Yeah, I want to highlight both Yankees, Red Sox and uh, Philadelphia, Atlanta, because oh, both must the we Phillies watch and Yankees, the Philadelphia well, the reason is both the Phillies and Yankees have been redefining a bullpen misadventure recently, um, including when they played each other in the middle of the week, uh, an incredible game uh, when, like, Brad Miller just dropping a fly ball was not one of the five weirdest things that happened at the end of that game, <laughs> and uh, then last night where the Yankees lost. First, they lost because uh, Chad Green blew a two-run lead with two outs in the ninth. And then in the bottom of the 10th inning, Brooks Kriski threw four wild pitches, and it would have been five, except uh, one of the five was on ball four to Xander Bogart, so it didn't go down as a wild pitch. But in the span of two batters, he threw four, would have been five wild pitches. So I'm excited to see what the uh, Phillies and Yankees relievers do next.
1: Yeah, that that game was... I don't know. thought it was going to be a big vindicating moment for those of us who remain not sold about labor Torres as a, a defensive shortstop, and it turns out, like after he got Bill Bucknered in what looked like a game-changing rally, uh more and weirder was yet to come. Um, yeah, i I just can't believe like part of me just wants the Mets to go win seven in a row and put the rest of the NL East out of its misery, um, just so we don't have because it's the hope that kills you, right. Um, but not like anybody's going to be paying attention to that when we have Milwaukee, Chicago on the the schedule.
0: I'm just so excited that a national audience is going to get to see Lance Lynn for, uh, to, to see how you have been seeing him for the last three years.
1: It's a big moment. I mean, we mentioned Mississippi state baseball off the hop. This is like a proto egg bowl with Ole Miss uh alum lance lynn and mississippi state's brandon woodruff on the mound at the same time uh yeah it just everything is really coming together um i mean a pair of two-way players too and rodon and and woodruff so i mean everything this i why bother playing the rest of the the mlb slate i think we should just cancel everything else and, and let everybody focus on these these three games all right i hear no objections so i'm gonna end the show now uh That'll do it for this week's episode of the ringer MLB show. Uh, Be sure to follow us on Spotify uh, at ringer baseball, where you can get our new shows every Friday and baseball barbecue uh, every Tuesday, Tuesday, uh, with Jake Mintz and Jordan Schusterman. Thanks, as always, to Zach and Ben for joining me. Thanks to our special guest, Roger Sherman. Uh, be sure to subscribe to and follow his podcast, The Ringer Guide to the Summer Games. Follow him on Twitter, at Roger. Uh, that lucky bastard got his just his first name as his Twitter handle. Um, what a guy. Uh, thanks, as always, to Bobby Wagner and Mike Wargon for producing today's episode. Thanks to Eddie Alvarez, Nelson Cruz, and the Guardians of Traffic for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the weekend's action and we'll see you next time.